welcome to the latest episode of Design Truth. Uh, my name's Brad and me and my design mate Drew are taking a look at all things design education on the podcast today with two guests who thankfully know far more about it than me and Drew. Um, quick reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Geomic. Geomic, that is G-E-O-M-I-Q, is an online manufacturing platform that the world's leading engineering teams use to get quotes and place orders for both prototyping or production parts. Use the code TRUE50 for £50 off your first order of CNC, injection moulding, sheet metal and 3D printed parts. Let's get straight into the podcast. I actually found out today, Drew, that we are the ninth biggest design podcast in Armenia. Media. <laughs> so yeah, oh, no, amazing. There no are problem. really good podcasts about yeah. design in Armenia, though. Exactly, so it's a great. That's, that's yeah, excellent. to the three people in Armenia that have listened to it, I do really appreciate it. But yeah, maybe just oh, maybe laugh this morning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe laugh this morning yeah, when I saw VPN it come through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we decided to have excellent. two. We decided to have two guests today um, because it's just a lot better than just listening to to me and Drew rabbit on, but. Um, and uh, as you know, design education is like an underlying theme of, we, we talk about it quite a lot, perhaps a little bit too much um, sometimes. So we've got two people on that actually know a lot more about it than me and Drew, um, which is really, really great. So I'd like to, to, to welcome both Leila and Matt onto the, onto the podcast. I know Matt's listened to the odd episode here or there, but, uh, but welcome. And obviously no pressure around the three people that from Armenia that are listening. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I didn't know whether one of you wanted to kick off. Just introduce yourselves to the to the masses. So hi, I'm I'm Leila Sheldrick. I'm a lecturer at Imperial College uh, in the Dyson School of Design Engineering. I used to work in Loughborough um, near Matt, but at the other end of campus in the School of Mechanical Manufacturing. Um, and I trained as a design engineer and worked as a design engineer. And now I try and teach people design engineering. Um, and I do that in a school which um, I'm, I'm a really rare entity, actually. I'm, I'm one of only about two design engineers and everybody else is from all sorts of disciplines. We have roboticists and psychologists and battery experts and tribologists and all these people doing amazing things. Um, and we get to play together uh, and build programs. And so um, I run a program actually in partnership between Imperial College and the Royal College of Art called Global Innovation Design, which is two-year postgraduate master's mostly with people who have a couple of years life experience before they join us. Um, some designers, some engineers, but often a really diverse mix of people, artists or people from a business background, or we get physicists and those kinds of people coming through um, who want, who have seen that design can be a powerful way to help make their ideas a reality and make change in the world. Usually there's a very strong social desire and we try and help them figure out how best to do that. Cool. Yeah. And, and Matt, what about yourself? <laughs> so I'm Matt Sinclair. Um, I'm the program director for a design program at Loughborough, which previously I've been running the industrial design program. Um, but for the past two and a half years now, really, I've been involved in redeveloping that um, and creating an, a new program, which is just design, where industrial design is one specialism which students are able to choose as they move through their through their studies. But um, rather than that being the only focus, they can also choose to um, to specialise in either UX and service design or environments design. Interesting. So that that program actually starts next week. We'll have our first cohort of students that that join that. Um, before before I was at Loughborough, um, so I graduated from the RCA and then I worked at Nokia for about eight years uh, in the UK. I worked a lot in Japan, the US, and then I moved to Finland permanently. And then after I left Nokia, I set up my own consultancy in Helsinki and ran that for about 10 years before coming back to the UK to to take up this position nice and um so uh, if they're starting next week is this like the calm before the storm is it, <laughs> is it, 
No, this is calm. This, this no. is the storm <laughs> for the maelstrom. I think. Okay. And, um, and Drew, you're just about to kind of tiptoe into design education yourself, aren't you? So, in your own little uh, way, yeah. Uh, tiptoe slash, uh, yeah, just fall in. I think is yeah. the best way. Fall yeah. in slightly blind, uh, arms flapping, and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I don't think we've talked about it on here before. No. But I'm starting a part-time uh, lecturing position at Bangor on the product design course there. So I've, uh, this afternoon uh, and this morning, I'm, I'm writing uh, the first lectures that I'm giving on Wednesday morning. So that's kind of freaking me out a little bit in the background. <laughs> so yeah, it's great timing, just by coincidence, to have you two on. I'm going to really listen hard today. Yeah, if you if you see Drew just like scribbling notes down for about forty minutes, then then you know why. But just just out of curiosity, what's anything? What kind of led you to design both of you to, to design education in the first place? Was it a calling? Was it you saw a job online and thought this is I can do that? What 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 was the reason behind doing it in the first place? Good question. For me, um, <laughs> I was more, I, I started off being more interested in the research. So while I was working as a consultant, um, I was getting particularly interested in 3D printing and using 3D printing for end products and what that meant for the traditional design process when you didn't have to have hundreds of thousands of things that were exactly the same, potentially each one could be different. And I was trying to um, sort of work on projects around that area and I, I never really had the discipline to do it so I decided to start a PhD um, while I was still living in Finland but it was at Loughborough um, and at the end of that PhD after I'd moved back to the UK there was a position uh, advertised here and I was kind of encouraged to apply for it and said well okay I didn't particularly want to be an academic at that time but I thought I'd give it a go uh and seven and a half years later i'm still here yeah good i must be must must be enjoying it um what about what about yourself Layla? bear in mind your employees might be listening so they have to, <laughs> have to... <laughs> it's all right they they know us very well at work okay. expect the same from that my my <laughs> bosses um know me really well so it's fine um i I, well, it's funny. I in industry developed a reputation for being quite flighty because I never lasted too long anywhere. I would tend to get bored quickly, and so I, I studied design engineering and felt really kind of creatively void. And I'd worked for a bit and thought, oh, this, I don't need to do this. I'll try something design. So I actually went to northern Sweden and studied industrial design there. And then worked as a designer in a couple of different roles for different companies and then tried even some volunteer work, ended up doing a stint with Engineers Without Borders. Um, And during a kind of time of transition between things, a friend who had been working in a sustainability thing said, do you want to come and try sustainability out? We've got this 12-month research position. You can come and see if you like it and get stuck in. And I'd always been really interested in sustainability and it was one of those things that 10 years ago if you're working in a company and trying to push a sustainability agenda not many people are listening and mm. so I'd I'd gone for a job at an LED lighting company thinking they're energy efficient and this is wonderful but they were these like solid things machined out of aluminium so that they would be a decent heat sink and then sealed so that no atmospheric stuff would get in basically non-recyclable really toxic horrible things and so you're like oh it's like sustainable <laughs> on the one hand but actually not in practice and you start to see all these things from the inside and so I landed in this kind of 12-month research position to see if if that would be fun. And when I got there, and this was Loughborough, they said, oh, you could kind of do a PhD for free from your day job if you want and just kind of write it up afterwards. And I was like, oh, all right then. And then nine months in, the person who taught eco-design in our department left and then they needed a designer to teach sustainability. So then they asked me to start teaching and it just kind of spiralled. So I at no point had any grand plans and would have laughed at anyone who said you can go and be a teacher. But it's this incredible job that you can never get bored of because Mm. half the time 
especially if you're interested in something like sustainability, you can't have, well, I couldn't have too much impact by myself, but if I trained my students to go out into the world, then I was making a small army of people who cared about these things. And that was better. Um, and for my like research half of my life, I'm working with companies and getting an idea of how that still looks like in the real world that allows me to do that better. Cause Lots of academics also hadn't worked necessarily, and the students didn't have too much access to people who had been out there doing those jobs. So, yeah, um, yeah and, and and same, I've been doing it about seven and a half years now, and it's sticking. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say your outlook on design education has changed from being on the outside thing going in? Um <laughs> Um, it's been really fun for me when when I joined Imperial, I joined to build the School of Design Engineering. So right at the very beginning, um, before we had any students, the entire school, and there was like six members of staff or something. And so it's been really fun to see to see something with a very clear vision to create something that was really different from the rest of the engineering happening. And actually that was born from the program that Matt did in his master's um, IDE innovation design engineering, which has been running for 40 years now between Imperial and the Royal college of art. So it was trying to kind of distill what was working there and why that put out interesting people and try and put it into the flavor of that into a proper engineering degree. Um, and then for me, with the global innovation design, which is um, also quite young, it's only about seven years old. It's been it's been something that kind of grew out of IDE and out of what was happening there. And we've been trying to figure out what makes it distinctive and interesting and timely. And so it's been the education side of things and the curriculum design has been a bit like a a bonkers futures project in itself. It's like its own piece of research and practice and iteration, trying something one year and being like, oh no, they all did this. Okay. And then trying something another year. And so it's exactly like doing design, just the timescales are really long yeah. <laughs> and humans are very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's been exactly the same for us developing this new program. It, it's basically a piece of design strategy work or, or a piece of service design. Like you're creating something um, which people are going to engage with for three or four years. Um, they're going to pay a lot of money to do it. How, how do you, on the one hand, give them what they want as customers or consumers, even though we hate thinking of students like that, but at the same time get them to do things that maybe they don't want or that they don't understand why it's valuable? Mm. Um, and then how do you resource it? what kind of spaces do you need all, all of these kind of things make it yeah uh, like i said a, a fairly complex design project yeah I, I thought it was really interesting talking to you both the other day and um you mentioned that the students that are now i suppose starting to to go through this kind of program that they might be doing jobs that don't exist yet <laughs> Is, yeah, i think the, it's um i don't know if it was the oecd someone like that who did this piece of research where they said that 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2035 haven't yet been invented. So the students that we're teaching now will be somewhere near the height of their career at that time. So mm. what, yeah, what are we meant to be teaching them to do? Mm. Um, and how will they, as designers, how will they engage with that sort of society? Yeah. So how do you start that process then of coming up with this program? Have you got any kind of insight you can share of how you guys went about, I suppose you pull industry in or what was the kind of the, what was the, the process, I suppose, of, of designing a new program? Um, we, we had actually, um, well, so there were, there were a few people, a few lecturers who had been discussing this for quite some time. And then mm. we, we, we got a new dean in the school um, and obviously somebody who who interviews for the dean position, they don't really go to the interview and say, yeah, I think everything's fine. I wouldn't really change anything. They, they kind of sell themselves on promises of making big changes. So Case came into the school with that sort of agenda and it. I guess I was just lucky that that sort of married with what some of us have been thinking um and then we had you know just feedback from students about what they thought was right and wrong with the program about the kind of jobs that they were 
going into um, that were giving us a lot of clues. Uh, obviously, things that industry were telling us that we were doing well, things that they thought that we could be doing differently. Um, but primarily, I think the um, the biggest driver for us was this idea, because I'm sure that when when we were at school or when we were when we were students, we were always told that design is a problem solving activity. And that's kind of that sort of framing works really well when you you sort of know what solution you want. But increasingly we were seeing students where um, or we were seeing design issues where it wasn't clear, like one solution might be a product, but one solution might be a service or, or something else. And we were seeing students that were frustrated that, you know, they made a choice at 17 to be an industrial designer. And now we were like, well, that's what you signed up for. So you have to do a bit of industrial design, mm-hmm. even though you and me both know that a piece of service design might be a better solution. And so um, I think now what, what we're trying to do is think in terms of issues rather than in terms of problems. So rather than asking students to write a problem statement or rather than getting them to write a brief that talks about a problem, we want them to think about to take a step back and think about the issue and then work through that to realise what the, yeah, a product might be the best solution, but equally it might be something else. It Mm. might be an environment. It might be um, a piece of social design or a piece of policy design or whatever. Yeah. How does that work with you, Drew? So you're uh, you're lecture writing at the minute, so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. To be honest, I think that's a, it's a bit more detailed than than um, than what I'm introducing the uh, the first years to. But um, yeah, as we said, one of the things that we're going to do um, with the second year students is to get them to consider pretty much the same things, the same approach to design, but just product is off the table for that run of uh, for that module at least that they are to consider the design and the thinking um, and, you know, and, and those same sort of inputs, but not for something that you can hold in your hand or put on your desk um, to get away from those. And that could be public spaces. It could be services or uh, something completely different. Um, yeah. So it, 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 yeah, it's fascinating. I think also um, what you reminded me of when, um, just then was uh, recently working for a company that was a, a startup and that had one product. And the one thing that I was trying to get them to move away from was from manufacturing a product. And by delivering the same, I won't over-specify what it is that the product did, because it'll be really obvious from our LinkedIn profile about whom I'm talking about. Uh, but I thought, you know, the technology is out there and we have, we're carrying better versions of this product around uh, in our pocket. And there are other ways of delivering this service without having to manufacture something. And that was the first time in my career where I really wanted to not design a product because I, I love them. I love the, the tangible things. Uh, yeah. And now that we have sort of global supply chain issues on virtually everything, but particularly on things like screens and chips and the materials that go into them, I think it's, I think it's critical that we have to think about, and especially from a, from a sustainability point of view as well, like stop making so much stuff um, because we have other ways of hosting a service. So I think it's really good. I think it, like, it absolutely speaks to what the current um, and future environment is, absolutely, as far as you know, I or anyone else can see. Mm. Is this is this something that was going on like pre-COVID? Is this something that's been like this is take does this take a long time to design a new program or is it uh, <laughs> everyone just crams around in a meeting and goes, right, you know, we can get this done by next Tuesday? Is this a long kind of how what does that time scale look like in terms of getting it to where it is today? Two and a half years for me. Yeah. About that, yeah, uh, to do it well, I would say, mm. and and even just from the university's point of view, their quality control process of the stages that we have to go through um, involve things like student consultation, consultation with industry, and and submitting the research and the insights and the market information and the and the pedagogy right down to what will the assignments be, um, and what percentage will they get for what type of work, and so it's there's quite a lot of detail and quite a lot of stage gates and. 
um, yes, lots of official things. So it, it can take a lot of time to do it well, mm. I would say. Yeah. And, and, and what are you, what are you seeing as some of the major challenges as the year, as the year kind of starts off? Is it just <laughs> getting, getting, um, getting enough people kind of not within two meters of each other and all the issues that surround social distancing and the logistics? What are the, what are the yeah. challenges that you, that you kind of foresee as we, as we go into the end, back end of the year? Well, I would say the thing Matt, Matt and I have been talking about for this past year um, on a couple of occasions, uh, for me, well, for us in general, I think uh, at Imperial, one of the huge problems with the postgrad stuff is that it relies on them being in the studio together under normal circumstances. And so we saw a massive difference in the way students learned um, like who did well that we would normally expect to do well or who didn't, how much they took on, how difficulties manifested and how they dealt with them. All of those things were so affected by not being in a studio together. And we rely so much on that, I think, for so much of the learning to then take place for it to catalyze success. And so when you remove them all being physically in the same room, it means that we have to change a lot of things in order to deliver the same experience experience for them and and there's a lot of stuff that we just can't replace Hmm. um so for me that was the most interesting challenging thing about last year and this year I think it will have its own new challenges in that some of the students are here but lots of them didn't get their visa letters in time or the embassies are closed or they're in a local lockdown and so they're not arriving for a couple of months so we've got some away and some physically here and a bit of everything all over the place and so how do we on them as a cohort, get them sharing and not isolate the people who aren't here yet. Mm. It's a bit easier when everyone's on Zoom. But. Yeah. Uh, did, are, are those kind of the non, not being in the studio so much or at all, is that a challenge that you, ex- did you expect that? Did you, is it something that you thought that it would be fine or was it worse than fit first feared or, or did the students kind of, learn a different set of skills than they would have done some of them did and flew which was brilliant like it's always it's always a joy to watch obviously the ones who do really well and always just really painful to watch the ones who are struggling yeah um and so for some of them they were fine and they figured out new ways to hustle and ways to engage with people and how to do ethnography remotely or how to do that kind of stuff and it was brilliant some of them didn't cope with it so well and so i i don't know if I'm, I'm an because I'm an engineer by training. I'm going to blame it on this. Um, it's the kind of thing that I understood would happen, but it's always still a surprise when you see the way that different individuals deal with things, and mm. then and then the way that depending on who it is in the cohort, it can like take a group with them. And yeah. so uh, sometimes one person can make a huge difference to the way everybody behaves. Mm which is really fascinating to watch. And, <laughs> and there's, I don't know how much there is that you can do about it, but mm. maybe need other people, not me, to try and help with that. It is. Um, I think we, it's good experience. It's good life experience, isn't it? Because, I mean, that happens in a team, in a, in a, in a company or in, a, um, you know, in an outfit of any kind that you can get, um, I don't know, everyone can kind of be rolling on quite nicely and then something unexpected happens, and if there's one person that uh, reacts in a, in, a, in a kind of a negative way, uh, that can have a real toxic effect, and I've definitely seen that uh, not even that long ago, actually, probably around the start of lockdown. I remember actually the start of lockdown being quite a relief to not have to go into work with one or two people, um, but that's just a personal thing. Um, you know, it certainly had its challenges, but there we go. Yeah. Yeah. And we see it both ways. It it can also mean if people are struggling, the good students don't know they're doing well, if that's happening in isolation. So normally the good students kind of understand their place in the cohort and what's going on. But all of that gets removed when they're not together or people are struggling in general as well. Yeah. It's like both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. A bit of a broad question, but but what makes a good student? Oh. Uh, I... uh, (laughs) Some someone who wants to learn things, like as awful as that sounds, irrespective of their natural skills, somebody who's open to learning and to changing is my favourite thing. Yeah. And sometimes the people, as a as a teacher, it's a joy to have a really brilliant student who barely needs you. 
<laughs> they're off just doing amazing stuff and you can throw harder questions at them and be encouraging and they go off and do magical things. Sometimes a student who's not getting it really makes you have to explain it 10 different ways or try things. And then when they hit breakthrough, that's the best. Hmm. What, what about uh, you, Matt? So, so I guess different people would um, define best student differently, but the ones that I like working with best are the ones who start a project without knowing whether they can actually achieve what they set out to do. Mm. And the, the ones who are kind of prepared to take that risk intellectually or creatively and, and, and kind of grasp that ambiguity and, and that uncertainty about whether they can do something or not. And particularly because it, Educationalists, you know, really often we we talk about how to reward risk and how to reward projects where someone's taken a risk but it hasn't pulled off. But actually, if you look at most assignments, that's not what happens. Mm. You know, and, and most students realise that, that they'll get a good mark for something that um, meets the criteria of a good product or a good piece of work. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the, the ones that are best to work with and the ones you can have most interesting conversations with are the ones who have that ability to almost step out of what the marking criteria say and just say, no, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. Are there any like projects that stand out to you from over the years where you look back on and go, that was that was a good one? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel a bit, a bit kind of mean focusing on one or two, but for example, uh, Miles Kilburn, who graduated three years ago now, he's at DCA. His major project that I supervised was a chest binder for transgender men. So it was like a smart a smart device that monitored your breathing and, and different things. And he was warned off it because it was going to involve a lot of textiles and we don't really know how to prototype those kind of things. He was warned off it because of that, um, the ethics of doing research with that user group was mm. really complicated. Um, and yeah, he was just like, no, fuck it. This is what I'm going to do. This is the project <laughs> I want. And it, yeah, that, that was a real kind of yeah. joy to supervise. Yeah. Do you remember your final year project, Drew, all those years ago? Yes, I do. Yeah. Any good? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I've talked about it before. I made an induction-heated kettle. Um, I mean, it, it happened to be induction-heated. It was designed to, um, to minimise the risk of occurrence of uh, injury or harm. Um, and one of the things that featured in that was it being induction-heated. And that's enough said about that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, one of the things that we've, um, we have a few kind of lectures and things that have come on um, in the past um, on design truth. And one of the topics that tends to come up quite often is around industry engagement with education. Um, I'd imagine that was quite a big part of designing a new program was kind of leaning on industry in particular for guidance and help of, of what skills are, are needed. How, how do you feel that um, about industry engagement with education is it in a good place could it be better worse different what, what, how do you feel about kind of your industry partners um so i think i said when we when we chatted the other day that i've spoken to around 40 diff, 40 people at different times through throughout this two and a half years who are working in industry in different in different companies, different organisations, um, you know, some really big organisations, people like Apple and Google and Rival, some consultancies, so uh, DCA, Native, Layer, people from the RSA. So we, we, we definitely um, see that industry and professional practice should be embedded in what we do um but my my position is always that creative education should be informed by industry not led by industry 
Okay. Um, I don't really see my role as educating the designers that industry wants in order to maintain its current state. You know, the people... Uh, so there, there is this quote that um, I kind of discovered when, uh, when, when I was writing uh, the work that I had to do to become a, a fellow of the higher education academy, which is something that we have to do as lecturers, um, which says that education should prepare young people for a world that doesn't exist requiring technologies that haven't been invented to solve problems that we're not aware of yet, um, which was by Simon Peyton Jones. I think he was working at Microsoft. And that really kind of drives the way that I think about how industry sh or how we should engage with industry, that the, the people that come out of our school um, should be people that are driving changes in industry. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're going to go into today's organizations or today's industries and effectively make what they do redundant or, or just change them beyond recognition. That's what we should be striving for rather than um, training people who can service the industries that exist at the moment. Yeah, that's what, that they'll be the ones that will eventually be the hiring manager, be the business owner, you know, be yeah, the one, I, be I, the one I, influencing I always things. think that the success of what we do isn't judged on what our students are doing one or two years after they leave. It's what they're doing 15 or 20 years after they leave. Hmm. Is, is that similar with you, Leila? I imagine you've got such a broad range of people that come onto the course as well from different walks of life um yeah does that, does that influence things at all or yeah I mean I, I agree with everything Matt said and and we we have a slightly different approach um by necessity on the undergraduate and the postgraduate because they're trying to do different things um so the postgraduate that I run with the RCA it's 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 exactly that. We are we are often training people definitely for jobs that don't exist even upon graduation. So about 50% of our graduates will go into a company doing strategic design or UX or, or something like that. But about half will go off and start their own thing of some of some description. And so I can give what I can give a couple of examples of like the more traditional route and the not so. So we we had a guy who came from Imperial from the aeronautical engineering studies as an engineer, came onto GID, um, got really interested in fashion and sustainability, and spent some time in Japan as part of the program. And he came up with these um, expandable children's clothing for his final project. So it's like a, something that will fit a baby, but will also fit up to I think a seven year old or something like that. So it's brilliant stuff. And so he went off, launched that as a startup. Um, and now I think this month they've opened a kind of pop-up on Regent Street. So he's gone from engineer to designer to product developer, startup. Now he's running a small team of people and he's being exhibited as the future of fashion. Mm. So this is like the traditional, I guess, route that we have from GID or ID, where someone transforms their skill set, gets inspired and goes off to do something. Um, the other example, and I think is an interesting signal of the type of stuff we have coming through the program, is this woman who, she studied ancient history at Oxford. She worked for Saatchi and Saatchi, so she was doing marketing, advertising stuff. And then she came to GID and didn't quite know what she wanted to do, but had worked with designers, had seen this kind of thing, wanted to do something more meaningful. And she... She came across, she decided quite early on that there was a big empathy deficit in the world and that we were, and that this could be an interesting lever to explore where design could have an impact. And so she worked with empathy from all different angles through the program. So um, they do a stint in New York at Pratt, uh, which is really like traditional mid-century industrial design education, like really hands-on stuff. So there she was looking at how, how empathy can be realized through sculpture and negative space, but then she's also doing like scientific-based empathy work. And so she graduated with a project working with 
the Finnish government to look at how empathy could be used in cross-party discussions. And she's now an empathy artist, like world's first self-created position. I don't know why I did this, world's first. Um, <laughs> for, the, for the people of Armenia, I imagine. Yeah, well, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> first. Um, definitely, I believe, the first. Um, and this last year, she was designer in residence at the Design Museum, artist in residence at Kettle's Yard. She's worked with big corporates like Virgin on how they can use empathy. She continues working with Finnish politics and she's doing a residency out in Bow in East London, where they've given her a space to be in the community using empathy as interventions there. So she's used the, her education as a vehicle to pick a thing she's passionate about, to invent a job that no one had and to go off and create something from that. And so I think, I think for me, that's the kind of weak signal of what education might do to create a space for those sorts of things to happen beyond saying this is the job that should exist, but someone forming a job. Mm. In that way. That's interesting. That's so cool. That's not at all what I would have had in mind when we were talking about, you know, creating people who are skilled to do jobs that don't yet exist. Yeah. You know, immediately <laughs> it might go to, uh, go to technologies or uh, situations, but yeah, an empathy artist, that's, that's mega. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go look that up after this. <laughs> <laughs> do she's, she's very wonderful i'm happy to make introductions we yeah. but we have a full scope of all sorts of bonkers stuff coming out of the program so i guess to come back to the original <laughs> question after a long story <laughs> we we work with our alumni to understand some of these weak signals and their reflections a few years out because they're off building their own things um and doing their own stuff now as well as working with industry as matt said who who can see things slightly differently and who might be able to help us do that slightly further ahead thinking. What we don't do is like bring anybody in with briefs of stuff that they they're thinking about now and get the students to work on them. It's always yeah. a bit more speculative. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I've had a few listener questions and I always feel obliged to like pass the listener questions on. Otherwise it's just really rude if I just put things up online <laughs> and then don't even answer the questions that get come through. But quite a common one. This is actually primarily from, from I'd imagine like first, second year students. We seem to have quite a lot of students that kind of listen to us, particularly, or they ask questions anyway. But quite a common question was around um, a master's degree and whether there was a, there was value in um, uh, kind of going down that route. I didn't know if you guys had a quick um, to a quick thing to kind of confirm thoughts in their own mind, whether it's right. I suppose it's bespoke for every individual, right? But I, I didn't know whether you had uh, a perspective on it. I think for for our for our undergraduate students, um, it very much depends on why they would be thinking of doing a master's. So uh, the model in the UK isn't really one that it, that it that design education is a five-year thing. So in Europe, it's very much that you do a three-year undergrad uh, and then do a two-year master's um, and you'll you'll get paid more for having done the master's and and you'll learn things in the master's that you wouldn't have learned uh, undergrad. Um, In the UK, I think, unless you're doing a master's in something that's, um, that's different to what you did, there's not that much value in it. So we do have um, some of some of our industrial design graduates who, who then do a master's in UX or service design. Or, um, and there's an obvious value that they get from that. But we don't really have any that do an industrial design undergrad and then go on to do a master's in industrial design. Mm. Um I'm sure <laughs> well, uh, I'll let Leila talk, but obviously what the, the, the kind of value of what she is offering is is very different to that because there isn't an undergrad in global innovation design. No. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, Does, uh, a master's degree as a specialism for something that you might want to do makes sense. Um what we're trying to do is create a master's degree as a place to kind of hone your skills. And I think lots of the 12 months master's programs don't quite allow for that. It's more kind of learning that you 
take and then it compiles later perhaps while you're working rather than Mm. compiling through practice based stuff during a degree program and I think that's why the five-year model works so beautifully in other places you're trying things and the university gives you a safe place to experiment and I think that's where the value is a safe place to experiment not on corporate briefs not on other people's agendas and those kinds of things as Matt said the best students are the ones who are sort of ignoring the mark scheme and doing it for themselves and so I think that that's where you learn the most rather than kind of consuming your degree as like getting the information and passing the exams or get, getting the grades that you want in mm. order to get the job. Yeah. I think that's did, less. Did you do a master's, Drew? Do you remember? For a bit. For a bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I've been working for five years and um, it was offered as a kind of part of my professional development plan at the company that I was working at. Um, so I was doing that remotely at Loughborough, um, but I did it in, so my, my bachelor's was in product design and then I did a master's for a bit, uh, in, in, in industrial design, all remotely. Uh, and then what happened? I got to a point where honestly, I wasn't fully engaged because, you know, the difference between the kind of project work that you're doing in university compared to just your daily work, there's a big, there's a big Gulf, and I had to drive for a few hours and all that sort of thing. Um, and then, oh yeah, and then I got made redundant. So uh, the funding sort of went away, and I had to go and really focus on the work that I was doing um, over at Design Reality. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, so I, I, I didn't finish it. Um, it's one of those things that I, I sort of wish I had got for completion's sake, and. Uh, probably would have been of more value to me immediately after graduating my bachelor's and it probably would have been even more valuable to me if I had done it in something else besides design that I'm interested in like something like psychology or something like that yeah I think that probably just echoes the sentiments of, of what was already said yeah but I suppose it's never something that um I mean I very rarely see something on a job advert that says you need to have a master's degree to apply for this position, but I suppose it hones your skill set in a specialist area, and that's where you can get the most the most value from it. Yeah, I think my motivation for it, probably at the time, if I cast my mind back, as being what in mid to late twenties, was that uh, in a medical device company, lots of people have a lot more kind of further and further levels of qualification. You kind of want to join that gang, um, and something that has Loughborough. In its, in its title, you can put get Loughborough on your CV or somewhere that you've studied, then that's also really helpful. I think it was as much that as anything else. Um, but yeah, I don't think my motivation was in, was equal to the amount of work and effort that was required. So Fair enough. I can say that because it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. So it's okay. You won't get Mark. You won't get. You won't get Mark down on it. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In terms, just um, in terms of listener questions, we had a couple through, um, and it was in and around like the gender disparity within kind of traditional industrial design. I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are people that are they're not the digital types. You know, they're still kind of your old school classic industrial kind of designers. Um, I just didn't know if you had any um, kind of thoughts in and around that in terms of. I suppose now you're introducing a new program, and, and maybe you've got some not necessarily trends, but just things you notice in terms of um, why that might be the case in terms of, you know, industrial design is inherently kind of white male, but do you notice that necessarily in your classes? And, you know, I'm just curious really, just to get your kind of thoughts, thoughts on it all. So on, on our industrial design program, which is the one that is being phased out, um, we've kind of had sort of slow but steady progress. So at the moment we're around about 45% of the students are female. Okay. Um, So intuitively, of course, uh, I feel like 50-50 is best. Um, But all all the time it's moving up, I'm, I'm sure that there was some. There'll be some feeling that it should be going faster, but it's kind of it's getting there. Hmm. For the new 
program. I don't know what, so the students that are coming in next week, I don't, I've not seen the breakdown yet. Um, but certainly in um, the teaching that we do, so in the second year on the industrial design program, we start to talk more about the design of experiences and how you do that sort of work. We introduce people to uh, user experience and services, um, why you need to do user research and develop empathy. And it does tend to be female students that uh, are, are at least more interested in it, which probably then leads them to become better at it. That, that's, it's definitely a stereotype because there are some really good male students who go into UX and there are some really good female students that go into this traditional industrial design. But if I had to stereotype things, I would say the, the kind of less, the sort of design where the end point is not a tangible product is more likely to see female students engaging with it. Mm. Um, and just one last thing. So we've, we've been working really hard to sort of move outside of our traditional recruitment route, which is um, through A-levels and, and engage with foundation courses and take students from foundation course. And that's brought more female students onto our program as well mm. that way. In terms of um, RCA, I, again, it's just because you've got people coming from just all different walks of life. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be different, but I don't know if you had to, but just um, perspectives shared, particularly with you being at Loughborough as well in, in times gone by. Yeah, yeah. Really different ratios in all, all the programmes. Yeah. So uh, the postgraduate degree I have, I kind of agrees actually with what Matt said but to go through them all at Loughborough on the design engineering program at the other end of campus that it was about 12 to 13 percent female when I left five or six years ago so that might have gone up now um the imperial design engineering program um that we've been running the last six five six years um is about between 45 and 50 percent female which is brilliant and really, really high for Imperial. Um, and I think is the product of a number of different things. One of which is that Imperial is a really international university and extremely competitive. So we just get a lot of applications that we can choose from mm. in a way. And there's no, there's no like positive discrimination, but we, when, a very intelligent young woman who wants to do sciences or engineering looks at what's happening at Imperial often, often the students on the undergrad come to us because they want to be imperial rather than they want to be design engineers. So if I was interviewing a design engineering student at Loughborough, they for sure looked at the Brunel programme, the Strathclyde programme, the Loughborough programme, and they, they're looking at design engineering. But at Imperial, they're looking at mechanical engineering at different UK universities, almost certainly, but they've seen design and that sounds like something that resonates with them and the, the applied nature of the work. So I think that we get a high female um, application rate through that effect, partly. That's my hypothesis. Um, <laughs> for the, I don't know what the uh, the undergrad admissions person would say, but um, for the postgrad programme for GID with the RCA, um, we actually have a really high female percentage um, with compared to the rest of the RCA and compared to our sibling program IDE when Matt studied and I think that's because the program has this really strong global social focus it's work that's about people and the environment and that kind of stuff typically um, we don't dictate that it's that but because of the style of the program we get those people who tend to be more human-centered and that means that we every year have more and more percentage of our applicants are female so it's it's a trend that we're actually having to work on the other way because a mix is much better. And we've had a couple of problems with um, too too many females and not enough men in the past few years. Interesting. That's the first time I've heard that. Remember <laughs> 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 a design lecture. But um, normally, um, we normal question we ask at the end of the podcast, because we just come up to an hour, the normal question we ask, Drew, is what's the strangest project you've ever worked on? But I don't know... I don't know if that would be similar to um, for design lecturers, but um, 
I thought I'd maybe <laughs> ask a slightly different question um, because I, I just tried to know what, what was the uh, what was the strangest thing that's happened in a design lecture over the last lockdown kind of period. Um, I can I've got one good example when I had to do a bit of a talk to uh, to university and there was a student that was cooking a lamb shank throughout most of my talk. Which I thought was just really, really strange. Um, but I didn't know whether you guys had uh, anything that you kind of look back on and kind of laugh at that's happened over the last 18 months or so. Oh. Um, I don't know that I have any good stories. Uh, I mean, it's kind of, it, it's not so unique because I think everybody's had stories of this, but um, on one occasion, where I was delivering a lecture remotely or, or a tutorial and my son, who was 10, just came in from school, came up behind me and just went like, hello students, and then <laughs> ran away again. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's been the nice thing. Like, it's really not uncommon that, yeah, people's kids are in the background or their cats are doing mm. whatever or they're... It's been nice to see people's lives happening. Mm. I think... The, this time last year when we were starting remotely, the weirdest thing was that there was a couple of students who were travelling to see us as they were joining the first lecture. So there's like trains and airports and things in the background. And the fact that people could be doing that is crazy. Yeah. What do you see the main issues of uh, design education currently? Um, so uh, I, I think with um, the, the whole thing about remote teaching, and I think we sort of touched on this um, and about studio teaching. Yeah, what, what I found really interesting was bef- before COVID, there were a lot of people in our university and education in general uh, and outside of traditional education who were talking about how online teaching and teaching by video and, and massive online courses, this is the future of education, which I pretty much disagreed with for, for at least for creative subjects and then when lockdown happened almost immediately the the narrative kind of flipped and it was about how we had to get students back into physical <laughs> spaces uh, and how um you know online teaching wasn't worth the money that students were paying and, and all of these types of things um and 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 then I kind of found myself disagreeing with that narrative as well because you know the the way that we typically teach design it's so it's not all that different to the kind of Bauhaus model that we've been developing for a hundred years or so. So it's not surprising that we know how to do that fairly well. When you jump to everything being online, you're not going to get it right in one or two years. It's going to take another eighty years to get it right. So I don't necessarily agree that um, it's kind of proved that online teaching doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a big issue is what is the, um, what is the balance between those two things in, in a, mm. in a model that traditionally relies on a physical studio. Mm. I that's yeah, I think there's definitely things that I'm looking forward to, um, or certainly the it, modules that I'm looking forward to being with the students in situ in the in the studio and kind of coaching and getting to know them and all of that sort of thing. I'm saying this as someone who's not done this yet, right? So my expertise on this is zero. <laughs> but I do know there's other things that I can teach effectively or that I can demonstrate effectively by recording my screen and working through um, working through a task, for example. But um, I think that probably applies to the wider field anyway, in the same way as, you know, if you're trying to run or be part of a team, uh, you know, and you're in product development of any kind, that, yeah, there's definitely some things where it's a, it's going to be a pain in the neck to go to the studio. So let's do this from home, or this could be an email, that type of approach. But, yeah, there's something really special about being in the room with people. You know, there's so much more communication that is just abundant. Um in in body language and in tone and demeanor and all these kind of things that uh you know because it's so important to share honestly and openly when you're thrashing out ideas or when you're 
analyzing those that i think yeah there's still something where we've got to figure out a, a safe way of doing that but i also think like before the pandemic and before covid if someone used to come into the work because there were so many people crammed into an office if someone came in sniveling i would always be the, the pain in the neck going go home get out i've got stuff to do i'm going mountain biking on the weekend i am not getting ill just get out go home um so i just think you know keep that up you know that's uh, that's my approach if you've got a if you've got September snuffles, stay home. <laughs> don't, don't give it to me. I don't know. I suppose it's a, I suppose it's a bit of a balance, isn't it? Because I know just other universities that we've spoken to have really benefited from a sense of remote working because it actually allowed them to start to engage with industry in a different way. And, mm. and, and so <laughs> maybe they're in the back end of nowhere, for example, and they can they can rely on or can pull on industry a little bit more to to come on and talk to their students because they're they're more willing to do that because it's not going to take them a day to travel to go and and those so others have benefited from how specific are you getting here brad <laughs> how specific <laughs> are you getting here <laughs> Just, yeah, one, 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 ones that aren't in the, you to get one, from your house to bangor <laughs> one, ones that aren't in the major cities for that way um or or yeah, uh, yeah they generally yeah. have I do, I do feel like um also people in industry are also far more willing to actually spend some time with design education because of the less time spent their end to doing it so i think there is a benefit that does that can kind of come from um a form of remote working you, you mentioned kind of um one of the main issues there's around or potential issues is around kind of the the finances side of things that does come up quite often i suppose is that very quickly you don't have to met into course i'd imagine design education is very much worth the money at the two kind of organisations you represent but <laughs> do you feel roughly that you no know, is design education worth worth the money in you in, in in your opinion or or do you want to duck that one <laughs> I want to say something about maths but I afterwards but I I think um I think it, yeah <laughs> um I mean personally I don't think that anybody should pay for their education um I didn't pay for mine and I, I don't think anybody should. But I think um, this perhaps touches on another point that at the moment we have a government that doesn't really think that art and design are important at school. They're, they're not core subjects. And if students aren't doing them at GCSE, then they're not doing them at A-level. And if they're not doing them at A-level, they're not going to go to university to do them. And we're already seeing design courses close because they're relatively expensive to run interestingly you know private schools quite often they advertise the extent to which they teach art and drama and music and design that's seen as a positive and I think there's a risk that design education becomes um, a a thing that predominantly middle class kids do I think that's that's an issue that we're at Loughborough we're already facing yeah um yeah sorry I think that's the but, direction that I tend to go off in as well actually is that you know we talk about um the backgrounds that people are from that get to do a design course at university and I always you know bring out my working class chip on my shoulder to um to talk about with everybody because yeah, it's it is important. I do, you know, um, it is critical. I do think there's a a growing disparity there, as you say. Yeah, and if we can get Boris on the podcast, then I can ask you that. All right, and I can get and I can get him to answer that question <laughs> question for you, Layla. Did you have something to say? Sorry. Um, well, no, I I also agree. I studied. It wasn't free when I went to university, but it was. A, a thousand pounds a year and so it wasn't so bad and actually as a design engineer I'd seen the program the IDE program at the RCA and the amazing work but could never have afforded to do it or spend two years living in London so I went to Sweden partly because it was free and it was somewhere different to be and so that's why I did my postgrad there um it's incredible that they let you do that and study there for free <laughs> pre-European Union <laughs> um but I very aware that I run a program that costs that is one of the most expensive design programs outside of the US 
Um, and it involves living in some of the most expensive cities in the world. So our students not only have to live in London, but also Tokyo, Beijing, New York and Singapore. And so none of these are cheap places to be. And so there's an extremely high barrier to entry. And we're doing design that's about um, inclusion in large parts and about that kind of thing. So there's a real tension there with with the ability that we are we have very limited ability to get a diverse set of students in under those circumstances with the way things are um so i don't have a good answer <laughs> um because again it's one of those catch-22s if we if we put, can take somebody who is well educated and comes from a good background through the program then we can get them out and doing a lot of good theoretically so swings and roundabouts thank you for listening to the latest episode of design truth I'm actually off to Malta for a week just to uh, make you slightly jealous. Um, ever want to be on the podcast, track us down. Hello at designtruth.co.uk. This episode has been sponsored by Geomic. Big thanks to them as always. I'm going to go into get into holiday mode, leave you with some funky music, and I'll see you next time.